is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms for a time But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. You are listening to the Batuta Advocates New Decode podcast, a series that endeavours to help explain the many different personalities, tribes, ideologies and jargon that exists within our federal politics. This series will continue right up to the federal election and perhaps beyond as we aim to shine a light on a media and political class that treat us like mushrooms, as in they feed us bullshit and keep us in the dark. It's come to be a a running theme heading into this election. No one really knows what's going on or who they're voting for or which party anyone belongs to. That's the kitchen table conversations anyway. My name is Clancy Overall, editor of The Tudor Advocate. And I'm joined today by editor-at-large, Errol Parker. How are you, Errol? Good, mate. I agree with those sentiments. And I just think that, you know, there's no real more effective vote this time around than a donkey vote moving forward. I think we're just going to have to look forward to things moving along at a very slow pace in this country until we're inevitably overrun by water, by our neighbours from the north, or God knows what else. Probably locusts at this rate. Now, over the last few weeks, we've bounced around the political spectrum a bit. We're interviewing elected officials of all shapes and sizes. From the independent candidates, Allegra Spender and David Pocock, to Liberal Senator Jane Hume, Nats MP David Littleproud, and Greens leader Adam Bant, not to mention our cadets Effie and Wendell, who have interviewed a whole range of different background figures who delve in the dark arts. Pollsters, union officials, Wyatt Roy, and Kevin Rudd, the Messiah. Especially Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd. He he gave them all the heebie-jeebies. He's got 10 fingers and they all look like pies, and they're in pies too. Now, today's guest might not agree with what I'm about to say, but I have to admit it. Even out of all of those different weirdos I just mentioned, the politician we are about to interview is a far rarer breed than the rest, at least from the perspective of these rural journalists, because he is a Victorian national MP. Yeah, it's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? Is there such thing as regional Victoria? Well, there is, Darren. Or is it just out of Metro Melbourne? Out of Metro Melbourne? You don't don't know. People from Victoria will say these town names you've never heard before, that they don't really work phonetically. But, you know, there's people and there's bushies out there. And Darren Chester, the member for Gibson, is one of them. He's been a member of the House of Representatives for the Nats since 2008, an area not readily associated with the sweet, sweet coal and gas that seems to have the heart and minds of the rest of his parties. And today... He's going to explain to us just what makes him tick. DC, thank you for joining us, you old bushy. <laughs> After an introduction like that, I'm not sure whether to say thank you or not. But no, great <laughs> to be on your program, boys. Now, we've got you right at a rather interesting time in politics. What's going on today? Well, that's right. Today's Budget Day, which is obviously uh, a pretty important uh, event, and it's going to be really the, the official kickoff of the election campaign, you'd have to say, although from all, all accounts, if you look around, the leadership of the various parties have been really in campaign mode since the start of the new year. So the budget itself is, is a big event, mainly for the government, obviously. It sets out its economic plan. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg does his best Josh moments and uh, gets out there and tells us how he's going to spend your money. Mm-hmm. Then we listen in very intently to see as local members whether any of that money going to come to our electorates and uh, whether we can uh, get out and deliver stuff in our community. So it's a big day for the government. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's our money and not the money, you know, taxed from giant corporations that like to move all of their intellectual property rights overseas. 
I've got to say, your, your introduction was a little bit dispiriting, though. You're, you're, you're advocating a donkey fight. I'd just say to people, if you're not really interested in politics, have a good look at the candidates and vote for the person you think is going to get the job in your community, regardless of their political stripes. And I just encourage people to stay engaged in the process, even though uh, the campaign can be long and boring for a lot of people. Uh, just look around your own community and figure out who's going to do the best job for you. Well, I guess uh, to channel Bob Catter, a donkey vote is the ultimate act of rebellion. Now you took away all of our AKs. So. <laughs> I look, I, I really wouldn't encourage people to donkey vote. I think, uh, you know, have, have a look at the form guide. Pick the one who's the least worst of all the bastards running, if that makes you feel better, Fair and uh, really be part of the process. No, we're just winding you up, mate. With this budget, has Josh, who technically would be a neighbour of yours, in the scheme of things, uh, Victoria's not a very big place. Has he told you whether or not there's anything being delivered directly to your constituents? And if not, what would you like delivered to your constituents in the federal budget? Yeah, no, nothing in particular at this point. So I'll be listening with interest to the budget speech tonight. And I mean, Gippsland, the, the federal seat of Gippsland starts about two hours from Melbourne and goes for another four hours to the New South Wales border. So it's a bit more rural and remote than perhaps... Uh, most Queenslanders would give it credit for it. There's a, there's a few um, country towns out here as well. We're not all um, living in Paran and Brighton, so there's a bit of a wilderness out here. And it's a, it's a great part of the world. I've been lucky enough to be here, uh, grew up here, and then moved away, had a bit of time in Queensland working and ended up back in Gippsland about 25 years ago. So Josh isn't quite a neighbour of mine. He's got a far more uh, leafy suburban seat, but uh, we've got a, a lot of national parks, um, a lot of beaches, uh, Probably a bit too cold for Queenslanders to swim in, but got a lot of beaches and, and that's a nice part of the world. Now, can you tell us um, what did you get up to out of school? What was your real job? Well, you, you're probably not going to think it's a real job. I, I left school and did a cadetship at the local newspaper. So oh, I was a, oh, that's cadet, a real job, cadet, cadet journalist for the Gippsland Times and, and worked for such esteemed publications as the Gippsland Times, a weekly trading guide in the Werribee Telegraph. And then had a little bit of time at the Gold Coast Bulletin in the early 90s, then came back to Gippsland where my family was and and been based here ever since and got into politics seriously about, I guess, about 18, 19 years ago. I started working for a member of parliament and got more interested in, in community issues. And I got the sense that you know, country people weren't getting a fair go from political parties of either stripes. And I thought the only party that was actually focused on regional areas was the National Party. So I, I joined the Nats about 20 years ago, I guess now. And, and you know, one thing led to another, I ended up running for parliament uh, in 2008, came in the by-election in 2008. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, we, we were talking quite condescendingly, of course, we are winding up there about the, the Victorian Nationals, but there are different issues. These parties are supposed to, um, you know, represent a whole range of different people and a whole range of different regions. What is this type of stuff that people come up to you in the street and talk about? Yeah, Clancy, I think you're right. I, mean, I look at the Nationals perhaps differently to some of my colleagues. I think we're really a loose coalition of independence. I mean, when you look at the different areas we come from, they're all quite dispersed right around the countryside and there's not a lot often in common with some of the um, the individuals themselves. But the issues around connectivity, so to me, you know, good roads, good rail, good airport links, good telecommunication links, how we connect uh, back to our cities, how our kids connect in terms of getting a good education, they're all the sort of same issues whether you're two hours, four hours or ten hours away from a capital city. So, you know, if you want to get excited in the National Party, you tend to start talking about roads, and we've all got stories about roads we want fixed, so that's a, a real common theme for us. We're passionate about giving our kids the best chance to achieve their full potential, so whether that's through you know better schools or better links into universities and taking away some of those cost barriers. Personally, I didn't go to uni. I went I did Sale High School and straight into a cadetship at the local um, newspaper, but for kids who want to go to university, the cost barrier is sometimes very difficult for country people. So they're the sort of things that the National Party 
uh, party room gets most excited about is access to services, um, good infrastructure, and getting a fair go out of uh, out of the cities. That's really what gets us uh, all going and, and fighting together rather than fighting against each other. Now, Darren, I'm going to assume that you didn't grow up in one of the vast 400-acre cattle farms down there in Gippsland area. So what attracted you to go to the National Party? Traditionally, you know, country towns are more of a, they're more labour. So what made you go to the Nationals that you wouldn't traditionally go with the Labour Party or the Greens? Because, you know, how were they letting down the bush when you were looking to join a political party? Yeah, it's interesting. My, my mum and dad both came off farms, so I guess that was the background. Mum was one of five kids and dad was one of eight, so uh, there's only so many ways you can split up a family farm. So uh, dad took on an apprenticeship and was a plumber, so pretty humble upbringing in sale. You know, dad worked and, and mum looked after us kids at home, so it was a pretty good place to grow up. And dad was involved in um, volunteering for community groups and that sort of stuff, so I got involved myself, I guess, in that way. But in terms of you know political philosophies, I quite like old labour, old labour, you know, standing up for workers, particularly in, in the factories or, or in the mines in my electorate. I quite I understand that that uh, sentiment. I think the new Labor Greens Alliance is something that really troubles a lot of people in country areas. We, we, we kind of had a gutful of being told how to, how to live our lives by people who don't live in our community. So the city-based Labor and Greens get up our nose a bit and, uh, you know, shutting down industries in regional communities or you know, neglecting our national parks and saying we can't burn off and we can't look after them properly is something that really um, gets us a bit fired up in, in these regional areas where I live. And, you know, my community has a lot of farmers, obviously, but there's actually more nurses than farmers in Gippsland. There's you know, big hospitals and there's, you know, nurses, health professionals, teachers. So people living in regional communities are very diverse. It's not just about farmers or miners or one particular industry. It's, they're quite diverse communities and you, and you need to um, understand their issues and, and try to reflect that as best you can as their local member. You are right. It's a, it, it does get a bit kind of interesting, you know, when you go further north in Queensland, you start getting, I mean, I'm not sure if this is in your electorate, but you start getting around that Goulburn Valley and you've got all these different walks of life involved and fruit and prisons and whatever else kind of different industries you've got along there. And I, I found it interesting that you used the term like almost a coalition of independence. I'd never heard that before and it kind of does make a bit of sense when you really think about it. The personalities and the interests are so diverse in the National Party as you go up the coast. But as you get into Queensland, it starts narrowing a bit to the point where the Liberals and the Nationals become one. Can you explain why there's no LNP in Victoria and why you would never entertain it? Yeah, good question. There was an American ambassador who once famously joked that that's what I love about Australia. The further north you go, the further south you get. <laughs> it was sort of reflecting it becomes a little bit more um, conservative further north perhaps and um, it's a different country to the rest of Australia and, and that's uniquely uh, what Queensland offers. I think Queensland's a great state and I uh, you know, spent a bit of time there as, as a younger bloke but I just found that Victoria was more my pace so I, I moved back. But in terms of the merged entities, that was a uniquely Queensland solution to a Queensland problem around the um, optional preferential voting system. So you could just vote one and the preferences wouldn't uh, extend out to the other candidates, so they, they end up with a merged model. And in Victoria, there's, there's still quite a bit of difference between the Libs and Nats. You know, the, the Libs do have some regional seats, obviously, but uh, the Nats maintain their own identity to have three of the regional seats down here at the moment. And we obviously um, guard them quite jealously and we believe we bring something different to the party and that we're regional specialists and we, we don't uh, have to really worry about what the suburbs are thinking so much. We, we believe that our passion for regional Australia allows us to focus on that, be the specialist for regional areas. I'd like to see the you know, nationals 
expand uh, into WA and South Australian win some lower house seats there as well. I think that would give us a, a better footprint and a more authority as a party. I think regional Australia wants its own party. Uh, they want you know a strong voice, but it also needs to be a, a respectful and moderate voice and a voice that builds consensus across the community to try and make sure we're going forward with a you know plan that gives young people a chance to, to live in their regional communities, to get a good education, to have good access to, to health, to have the telecommunications we want. All those things you've got to fight for. So, you know, people like David Littleproud and I, for example, uh, have been strongly advocating for more practical action on climate change because we understand in our regional communities we're at the forefront of it. So uh, we don't, for a second, deny the science. We, we actually embrace it and say, well, how do we make sure our communities are more resilient going forward? Yeah, you don't, you don't strike us as the type of politician who kind of relies on the culture wars to you know, to roll people up and build a name for yourself. A little proud to not like that either, really. You know, the the gay rights or immigration or climate denialism, which is so easy to kind of get on Sky News and talk about. We don't see much of that from you guys. And it is well documented that you copped a lot of flack when, you know, you, you finally just said legalise gay marriage. It was happening anyway. You were the first in the National Party to put your neck on the chopping block. Tell us a little bit about the flack you copped there. I mean, this is all part of the job. Yeah, look, it was, it was probably the Little Britain moment, wasn't it? I was the only nat in the village. It was an unusual time. I'd been raising the issue with my colleagues for a fair bit of time and saying that I thought the community was moving and a conscience vote was the right way to go. And I thought that the majority of people would vote yes for it, and as it turned out, they did. I did cop a bit of flack from uh, from some colleagues who have a more conservative nature and basically told me that they would uh, never support me or any promotion for me in the future, and that was sort of internal issues. But Largely in the, in the wider community, people just accepted that I was uh, not forcing my opinion on them. I was just saying, let's have a conscience vote. You guys have a vote as well, and let's get on with it. And, you know, I think it was uh, the right thing to do at the time, and, uh, and I stand by having made that decision. Well, uh, yeah, no, it was interesting, and you were you ended up, you know, being on the right side of history there because Barnaby Joyce's electorate ended, ended up voting yes in the plebiscite, and so did almost... A fair lot of the rural seats, particularly national seats, except for the old Maranoa. We put the no back in Maranoa out here in Western Queensland. And of course, we didn't expect anything less of Kennedy. Now, that uh, brings me to the Catters. Bob and Albo have a very good relationship. They're good mates. Albo's put in the hard yards going up there and visiting him and making him feel important, which is, I'm sure, as you would know, is very important to do. Now, tell us... Worst case scenario here, and this isn't reflecting on the National Party, DC, if Scott Morrison ruins the legacy of the Liberal Party, all the independents kick out all of his brains in the inner cities, Labor takes all those marginals, and basically we're left with a coalition where there's more nationals than there are libs. Absolute worst case scenario. Catter has made the point that he is not opposed to siding with an Albanese government. Could you ever see a world where there's a nationals Labor coalition? Look, that's a terrific question. It's one I haven't really pondered too much about. We did see that in South Australia at one point with uh, Carlene Maywald as a National Party member formed government with Labor, and she was, I think, the Water Minister at the time, and and she made the decision that she could achieve more for regional South Australia as a Water Minister than sitting on the crossbench or being in opposition. So, I mean, that would be an incredibly transactional uh, decision to have to try to make if you got to a point where neither side could form government in their own right and you had to try and form some sort of coalition. Look, I I think the election is um, still a bit too close to call. I mean, the pathway for Labor to win a majority government is still quite difficult and, you know, everyone's sort of tipping more towards a hung parliament might be the result and then negotiations start with people like Bob Catter and the crossbench. But there's still a pathway there for us in the the Liberals and Nationals to win a majority. I think most of my colleagues 
who are continuing on will be confident winning their own seats back. And there's a couple of transition seats which will be tough for us, but we're, we're pretty optimistic there. And we've got our eyes on Lingiari as a seat we might be able to pick up. And you know, there's a couple others around the place that uh, the Libs think they're a chance at. So, I mean, the polls across the board are pretty grim for us, but you never get polls playing out exactly the same in every seat. So you, you can have these you know, aberrations, if you like, where you have some surprise results where suddenly it gets harder again for Labor to get a majority by themselves. So elections are always about choices. It's always about choices. People need to choose. Do they believe that what we've done has been good for the country? Do they believe our credentials, that we've got the runs on the board to still deliver, that we've got the energy, the passion for the future? Or do they think it's time for a change? And what and what does that change look like for them? And that's a choice people make on the day or, or the days leading up to the actual election. So I still think we're a pretty good show, but there's no question it's, we're, in a, we're in a tough spot. The uh, handling of the Murray-Darling Basin is a really contentious issue inside the National Party. How is it so hard to get past the fact that if the river's healthy, farmers are healthy? Yeah, it's a difficult one for someone on my side of the hill to reflect on too much. I mean, the Murray-Darling Basin obviously flows down through Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia out to sea, and I live on the other side of the Australian Alps, and uh, we don't have any direct impact from it, so we watch the debate from afar with, with a high degree of interest that how do we get the balance right be, between ensuring the flows for the environment but also making sure you've got industry and agriculture and towns. What's the old joke that uh, everyone upstream is a water thief and everyone downstream is a water waster? The only person using the water properly is me. So it's a very contentious issue when it comes to allocating water rights and, and getting the balance right. I think the Nats in this particular debate are the most sensible organisation going around because the members of the Nats are the ones who live in the community, know the farmers who are trying to make a living from the river and are trying to conserve water, but also understand that they produce the wealth that goes on the boats, gets exported and uh, creates income for the nation that ends up being distributed back into other infrastructure we need. So I think the Nats have a pretty good handle on it in the basin themselves, but we probably lean towards making sure our towns have a future and our farmers have a future. And then there are, I guess, there are others on the, on the more left left side of the political debate who are more interested in shutting down some of those industries and some of the agricultural enterprises. Now, the cost of living is something that everyone's talking about right now. A lot of people lost a lot of money during the pandemic. A lot of people um, have been faced with food insecurity and all these kind of issues that are usually wartime issues. And some might say that, that we are living in a wartime right now with what's going on in Europe, but it's actually been an issue for the last couple of years. The Nats have a good gauge on this. Some of the poorest Australians live in the bush. What is the thinking within the National Party about how to solve this issue? And, you know, it's a, it's a an issue that affects Indigenous people at a rate that obviously we have to reconcile with. There's plenty of gaps there that need to close, but also just, you know, the run-of-the-mill rural Australian white family haven't been doing it so well, actually, of late. Look, first of all, on the pandemic, it's it's been incredible when you look at the way our communities have worked together to try and help each other through it. So in some industries, people did very well out of the pandemic and their income wasn't interrupted at all. And, you know, home hardware and some of those type industries were very prosperous, very successful during it. So they were in a strong position where there's other areas of hospitality and the visitor economies copped a real hiding. So their income stream needed to be supported by the JobKeeper program. But you're also right that the nationals, by the nature of the seats we represent, have people in the lower socioeconomic groups of our nation and we understand that cost of living impacts, things like petrol prices, energy prices, food prices, all those things are a higher proportion of our people's income than perhaps in the city. So in the city they may have you know double income and substantially more cash coming through the house. 
So we're very conscious about policies that the cabinet makes. And when I was in cabinet, there were often debates uh, where we'd reflect our view about never forgetting where we come from as National Party people coming from those more humble rural and regional areas and making sure we give them a fair go. So not putting in extra barriers to country people, uh, not putting in extra barriers for young kids wanting to go to university and achieve their best. So we're very focused on on those sort of real, you know, I guess they are kitchen table type conversations about how the household budget works. I understand there's a lot of conversation now around that kitchen table about the price of fuel when you've seen the impact of the war in Ukraine flowing through to our bowsers. That has a real impact on on people who are, you know, having to drive a couple hundred k's to go and play a game of footy or netball or tennis or, you know, it interrupts whether people decide to go out on Saturday night if it's costing so much to fill the car up. These are all things that we're very attuned to in our party by, by you know, by virtue of the fact that we, we do live a bit more remotely and uh, have higher cost of living issues at the front of our minds all the time. I mean, the cost of fuel is, is a big issue, but the cost of household items, groceries, are definitely not the same as they were two, three years ago, heading into a much comfier election in hindsight for your government. Is there any discussions like that in the National Party to tackle the cost of living? I mean, housing affordability, leave that one to the libs and labour, and that's for the most part a city issue, but just in terms of, you know, kids wearing shoes to school. You're right that housing affordability has always been one that we tend to park as a city issue, but I don't know, in the last six or 12 months, the price increase we've seen in, in many regional towns is starting to play out there as well. That You know, this used to be a, a real competitive advantage for us. We'd say to our kids, you know, train up as a nurse or a or a teacher and move back to the bush and you'll, you know, your wage out there will buy you a decent house you could never afford in Melbourne or Sydney. Our house prices in regional Victoria certainly shot up lately, so that affordability issue is starting to play out for us as well. Look, I think across the board the best thing governments can do is put the economic parameters in place where people can get a job. If you can get a job, you can start saving your own money and put it towards you know your, your own family's future. We're in a strong position, I think, as Australia, that the unemployment rate is so low. So that's that's a, a good positive. I think the cost of living increase you're, you're referring to are a real negative for all of us. And I think, you know, obviously politicians on a couple hundred grand a year don't feel it anywhere near as badly as someone on, on the minimum wage. But we're certainly aware of the fact that prices are going up, you know, whether it's because of fuel or supply chain, you know, issues to do with the pandemic. It doesn't really matter to the person at the end of the, at the queue at the checkout. They're paying higher prices and they're trying to find a way to balance their budget. And I think we do need to be very conscious of that as a government that we're not putting more pressure on inflation and that we're doing things to spend taxpayers' money well and don't waste it because the one thing that really pisses off Australians if they see the government wasting their money. How closely has the Nationals been working with the government to produce this budget? I mean, the relationship's always been quite tumultuous. I mean, it probably didn't get lower than the point when a then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull popped his head into a Nationals party room meeting and told you all that he owned more cattle than you put together to the point now where it seems that Barnaby and Scott Morrison are having a barbecue on a Sunday afternoon together. What's been uh, the Nationals' input into this latest budget that you're quite proud of? I think David Littleproud said it a couple of weeks ago that it's quite a transactional relationship now and you know we're out to get the best possible deal we can. It's a business partnership where we want to get the best deal we can for regional communities. And, you know, I'm not in I'm not in Cabinet now. My um, my services were redeployed to the backbench about nine months ago, so I haven't been as heavily involved as I may have been previously. But from what I've seen from the outside, there seems to be a lot of um, input from our, our ministers on the key regional issues. And, you know, again, Barnaby's got infrastructure and transport. That's always a big one for us. 
regional comms, emergency management, those sorts of portfolios are very important to us as National Party members and we hold those portfolios. And, I, and as far as I'm aware, uh, our ministers have been very heavily involved in the shaping of, of the budget and the outcomes for regional areas. But I, you know, we'll see the document tonight and uh, be in a better position to judge it. But uh, I want to see a, a strong regional economic plan. I want to see a plan that focuses on the infrastructure uh, that we need uh, and also on the critical services that makes living in rural and regional Australia possible. And I think that's what we expect as National Party people to come out of the budget. Now, there's a lot of good local members in the National Party. And uh, one that I feel particularly sorry for is, and I believe he's a good mate of yours, Kevin Hogan. You know, he represents Page up there. He's going to have a quite tough battle against the independent in this federal election. Now, in your position, say if the Lismore floods, which happened in his electorate, happened in your electorate. Say one of the, one of the towns in your electorate got as badly fucking demolished as Lismore did and the, and the other surrounding towns in the area. How do you reconcile that as someone who is waiting on the government to pull the trigger, a government that you're part of, waiting for someone at the top to deploy the ADF, the state's waiting, everyone's waiting. How does that feel? And how do you keep a cool head about you without going full, uh, you know, Andrew Constance and jumping on today's show and telling the Prime Minister he deserves to get a hiding? Yeah, Kevin Hogan is, is a great mate of mine. We're, we're really good friends. And the moment this occurred, I um, was on the phone to him, really just running through some of my experiences with the Black Summer bushfires and some of the things that his community will go through. And as it's come to pass, it has occurred uh, in similar vein. I guess you'd need the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, on the ground, along with the civilian emergency services. And a, a lot of pressure came on the volunteers. So there were some similarities, but the scale of, of the disaster in Lismore and some of those surrounding towns is something we'd never seen before. You know, you keep in mind, this is a community that's used to flooding. It's not unheard of to floods in the Northern Rivers region, but this is far surpassed anything they'd seen before. So Hoag's has worked incredibly constructively with the state ministers and the federal ministers in trying to get outcomes for his community. And I'm not going to, uh, you know, piss in his pocket too much, but he's the kind of bloke who you'd want to have on your side advocating for your community. And he's fought very hard to get some uh, additional funding that we've never given before for disaster recovery. One of the things that we need to keep in mind is once the TV cameras go and the, and the radio microphones are turned off and the newspaper photographers have all left town, the families are still there with this disaster recovery for months and years to come. I mean, I'm still dealing with bushfire recovery issues in my electorate two and a half years after the fires. Hogs will be dealing with issues in the Northern Rivers, you know, Lismore and those surrounding towns, I reckon for another five years at least. The rebuild is going to be enormous. And as Australians, one thing we really like to pride ourselves on is we don't let a make down. And we need to, you know, rediscover, capture that spirit as Australians and understand that some fellow Australians have been really smashed and beaten up here by a natural disaster they're going to need more support than we've ever given before to a community and we're going to stand by that community and help them rebuild and be a strong community again. And look, I think Kevin Hogan's the right guy to lead that in his own region. I can tell you now, they're not worried about the election campaign in that area right now. They're worried about getting the rubbish and shit off the streets and cleaning the town up and then trying to find a safe place to sleep and getting the, um, the house back to a livable state. So they're focused on really practical things uh, to get their lives back in order. And I think Kevin's doing a, you know, a damn good job to try and make that happen. I mean, in, in an ideal scenario, it's it's members like that who end up in Cabinet. What is the criteria to end up in Cabinet? You've been there, as you said before, your services have been relieved. What happens? Is it politics? Is it how you get the big jobs? Not so much the big jobs, because that implies it's all about the pay packet, but you know, you were working in veteran affairs. How do you get those kind of jobs? 
look, I, I can only sort of go from my experience. I definitely had a, a balance of, you know, you know, good fortune and hard work. I mean, the good fortune was I turned up in the National Party room in 2008. We were in opposition and the team was pretty old and there was a, there was a bunch of people about to leave in the next few years. So by virtue of the fact that I was 40 and they were in their mid-60s and leaving, I had promotional opportunities into a shadow role quicker than perhaps I might otherwise have got. And so I think by doing that job well enough, when we got into government, Warren Truss uh, gave me a parliamentary secretary role in defence. And and then again, at a future point, there were retirements of older people ahead of me and I went to the transport portfolio. You know, that was, uh, I guess, when they say a game of snakes and ladders, I had a bit of an opportunity to climb a couple of ladders pretty quickly. And then a, a couple of snakes come along and I uh, end up getting sacked from cabinet a couple of times as well. So <laughs> that's... Um, snakes and ladders. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I've had, I've, had a, I've had a few ladders and a few snakes along the journey. So that some of those things have been you know, intensely political and personal and stupid, and that's just got to live with that. You can't let it get you down. I mean, there's a – what's that old saying that tough times never last but tough people do? You've got to toughen up a bit and just you know, ride the bumps a bit and try and uh, pick yourself up and say, well, you know, I'm going to have a crack at doing a good job and, and keep doing the best I can. I had some incredible moments as Veterans Minister uh, working with our Defence Force personnel and our veterans, and I'll never forget – those experiences and I have enormous respect for our Australian Defence Force and I got to see them deployed in Afghanistan, um, off the coast of Darwin, here at home as well and got to see them up close and then also got to meet some of our World War II veterans, these these men and women who well, I think are the greatest generation of all Australians. They grew up uh, in the aftermath of World War One. they survived the depression, they fought in a war, they lost their mates and then they came back and built our country and that 95 to 100 years old, they're just so bloody thankful for all the support they get today. So I think they're great Australians. So, you know, I tend to try and count my blessings a bit about this job. I mean, you can't get too upset about the, the snakes and ladders game because, you know, there's always someone around this place trying to bring you down. And I try not to uh, focus on it too much. Now, a good minister be someone who um, understands their portfolio, understands that they don't have all the answers and listens to people who, you know, have a lived experience in that area and then goes and argues strongly on behalf of the people they're representing within that cabinet environment. So from my perspective, I had to listen to veterans, understand what their family's concerns were, and then go into cabinet and fight like hell to get them the services they wanted. Sometimes we won, sometimes we didn't, but generally speaking, we uh, we got a pretty good hearing, and I've got to say the Prime Minister in particular was very strong in backing me on veterans' issues. Now, it doesn't actually look like the Nats are too spread for talent when we start talking about some of these people, you know, you said before, Hogan, yourself, there's a whole lot of people that actually don't make headlines every single day with leaked text messages and the like. So, you know, the future of the Nats, as you basically, the optimism you're kind of bringing to this interview is that, you know, there's there's plenty in the ranks. Liberals don't seem to have that much talent spread, at least at the top. Who do you think would be, um, for example, if Scott Morrison breaks his hip tomorrow jet skiing in Cronulla, who do you think would be a good leader after him? Well, if he breaks his hip jet skiing tomorrow in Cronulla, you've got to look at who pushed him off it, first of all. So, <laughs> 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 oh, look, I, you know, in, in the scenario where I look through the Liberal Party ranks, I've got some good mates in the party who I think are you know, very talented people. You know, I think some of the future talent coming through at some point, the, the, the Trade Minister, Dan Teen, has got a good head on his shoulders and lives in uh, regional Victoria and I think understands both metropolitan and regional life. He's the kind of guy who in the future might go to a you know, even more senior role, but he's already the trade minister, so he's got an important job already. I think they've got some good people in the ranks. So you don't hear much about the backbenchers, but I've worked on committees with people, and I say this about the Labor side as well, 
to be fair, there's some very good people in Parliament. I mean, you you really think about the stories that people bring to Parliament. There's 151 members of the House of Reps. They've all got their own story they bring to this place and they all add something to it. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them or it doesn't mean that I'm going to like every one of them, but there's some ripping people in this place who I have enormous respect for and there's com- some complete tosses I don't care if I ever see again when I leave, but, you know, that's, that's life. <laughs> um, and there's plenty of people who probably think the exact same about me. So it's an interesting place that you bring everyone from all over Australia to Canberra to discuss national issues and friendships form across the political divide and I think it helps. It's good and, it's good and healthy. It helps you understand other perspectives. I mean, my old man used to say that, you know, opinions are like arseholes, everyone's got one. You know, there's plenty of opinions come to this place that you've just got to figure out which ones are worth listening to. Now, we all remember the bromance between Albanese and Chris Pine. That was yep. one for the book, Thelma and Louise. Two boys from social housing. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us, and we're going to finish on, you know, last time we interviewed um, Little Proud and we asked what's the one thing he wants to achieve heading into this next term of parliament and he said he wants to bring the kids home to the bush. He wants to encourage young people to move back. And we'll get to that question in a second, and we'll finish with that one. But first of all, I want to ask, why uh, didn't you put your hand up in the last Nationals leadership spill? Uh, it's important to be able to count as a politician. And uh, if you can count your supporters on one hand, there's no point running for the leadership. No, look, so the most recent one was uh, Barnaby uh, challenging Michael for the job. And I have a very strong view that you don't roll leaders during a term of government, that in the National Party at the end of each uh, political cycle, end of each term of government or opposition, we spill the leadership and that's and that's decided then. So I was very much against us even spilling the position. I thought we should have dealt with it after the election. But, you know, that's history now. It's gone. So I was never going to challenge for the leadership of a sitting leader. I was already the Veterans Minister at the time and, and had, I had a full deck of uh, issues to deal with in, in my own job. Uh, little did I know a week later I wouldn't be the Veterans Minister either, but that's, <laughs> that's how the, the, the job rolls from time to time. I just feel in this job... We've got to try and, and build more consensus across the chamber about the issues that really matter to people. I mean, Australians want us to do a better job. They don't like seeing us just you know yelling at each other, arguing in question time. I mean, that's a bit of theatre, really. The rest of the time in this place, it's more civilised, but I think the Australian people would rather see a bit more of a civil debate on a more regular basis. And to that point we were saying before, what is the one thing you'd like to bring to the people of Gippsland now and moving forward past the election? I guess it's always been my ambition to build infrastructure and better things in the community, but I think I've gone past that now in my own attitude as I got a bit older that I really want to build a sense of pride amongst young people in regional Australia. I want them to feel like there is nothing they can't achieve, that just because they've grown up, you know, four or five hours from a capital city, they can still achieve great things in their lives and be proud of where they come from and, and never forget where they come from. So I'm I'm really passionate about helping young people achieve their full potential now. And uh, that may seem a bit abstract, but I just I think we can at this level of debate, you know, in, in public theatre if you like, we've got to try and be more positive and optimistic to give our young people after a really torrid couple of years with the pandemic, give them that hope and optimism themselves. I mean there was there's a famous story, I think it was 1991, Steve Waugh on the um, the test tour of India started using the phrase that your, your attitude is contagious, is yours worth catching? Because the Australian team used to turn up in India and, and bitch and moan about the pitches and the, the umpires were cheats and the food was crap and it was it became self-fulfilling they are going to lose the series. But Waugh was saying to them, your attitude is contagious, is yours worth catching? And I think if we can have a contagious attitude at a senior level of government about positivity and talking Australia up and talking the regions up, that our young people will achieve even greater things. And I, I look, I, 
I'm in the um, last phase of my political career. I've been here 14 years, so in the next few years that I've got left, I want to try and uh, be a really positive and optimistic voice of change and uh, proudly standing up for regional areas, and I want young people to feel the same way about where they came from. Well, it's a great – we always love finishing on a test cricket metaphor. Thank you for joining us today, DC. That was a um, great yarn. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your model planes there? Yeah, I just noticed them when, the, when I set up the camera. Uh, one of the things when I was <laughs> transport minister was uh, any time Qantas or Virgin or Rex had turned up, they'd uh, give me a model plane. And then when I was in the defence-related portfolios, I ended up picking a few more planes up uh, – a couple of roulettes behind me from the East Star RAF base, so they ended up collecting dust on the decks behind me. So they've probably all got cameras all been bugged or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I was about to say because you do learn how to fly an F-18 for the Air Force down in sail. So yeah. I guess uh, there'd be a lot of uh, broken windows down there from pilots learning how to go through the sonic boom for the first time, I'd say. Oh, look, I reckon if you asked nicely, they'd come down and take you for a trip around in one of the roulettes. The new PC-21s are a pretty flash bit of kit as well, and there's a, there's a second seat in those, so you can jump in the back and go for a spin. They took me out for a ride one day, and it was uh, the most fun you can have with your clothes on, I've got to say. It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeez, I might have to come good on that. If only Brody did that first. <laughs> okay. Anyway, mate. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Darren Chester. All the best with the budget, all the best with the election. All the best, boys. Thanks for your time.